Well, how to choose a Bible translation. I was thinking to myself uh, when we heard those songs. They're great, very uplifting words, and they're based on God's word. It's no point if we're singing words that don't actually relate to, to reality. And yet when it comes to choosing a Bible translation, I wonder how we do it. Sometimes we do it because of word of mouth. Somebody says, this is a really good version, you should, you should, you should get this one. Sometimes we see a verse quoted and we go, wow, that's, that's a great turn of phrase. I must get one of those. Sometimes it's the title that gets you. There's a version called the Passion Translation. Who wouldn't want a passionate translation of the Bible compared to a dry version of the Bible? Or perhaps it's just it's the most popular one or perhaps it's the one that's used at your church. I reckon for a lot of people it's just a matter of personal taste as to which Bible they use. Is it important? I think it is. Because it's, the Bible is God's revelation of his mind and of his character and of his will to us. God has taken the time to reveal himself in the pages of God's word and let us know exactly the kind of God he is and what he requires and what his will is, what the future is, what the past is, that's all there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that the Bible writers, though human, he said, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? Being pushed along by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 30 says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you. And I was thinking in the kind of secular context, uh, you know, if COVID were going to flare up again and you know, become a major epidemic and you got a message from the federal health minister and they said, I've got a message for you. I've got a message for you, Elizabeth Wilson. There'll be a driver who'll be bringing that message to you. Um, he'll, he'll come around to Lander Valley, expect him in about 45 minutes. So Elizabeth's waiting at the door. What, what business would the federal minister of health have for her in the middle of this crisis? Black car picks up, driver gets out, opens the back door, messenger comes out, says, I have a message, a message for you. Are you Elizabeth Wilson? Yes, yes, I am. A message for you from the Federal Minister of, of Health. And Elizabeth, by this time, she wouldn't be able to wait. She would say, where is it? Where is it? Give it to me. Give it to me. He said, no, I haven't actually got the message, but I've written it down. And he pulls out a scrap of paper out of his pocket, says, goes something like this. You'd want to be confident, wouldn't you? that the person who was transcribing that message that was so important, it's coming from the federal minister, that it was actually a pure transcription of what he'd said. You'd want to say, well, did, did you write this down in, while he was having conversation? Were you looking over his shoulder and writing this down? Did, he, did you take some time and actually write down the exact message? Well, I think it's the same with scripture. We've got a message from God that's so important. We want to be confident that the people that are bringing it to us are preserving exactly that message that God has given us. We need to be confident of that. Uh, especially so with, uh, and it's close to home for me, because my experience is I grew up in a religion that had their own copy of the Bible, and I trusted that Bible and used it for a long time. But I found after a time that it wasn't representing what God had revealed. Now God has revealed his word in, he's chosen to reveal it in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Most of us don't have access to that. We've got to have someone that will provide that to us uh, in English. And so my version of the Bible, which was this one, looks like a regular Bible, feels like a regular Bible, but I found there were things like, is Jesus really God? Because in my Bible, in John 1, it says the word was a God. That's a little bit different to, to being God. 
I found when I looked through I thought, well, can, can you pray to Jesus? Is it, is it right to pray to Jesus? In John chapter 14, as revealed by God in the Greek text, it says, anything you ask me, Jesus says, I'll do it for you. But this version is, is missing that word me. So it says, anything you ask, and it's in reference to God. So can you really pray, pray to God? Is, is uh, God, is Jesus... Uh, who he says he is. Well, my translation didn't provide that for me. And so um, even though that was a good-looking translation and it was leather-bound, it was of no use to me in actually re- revealing who God is. And that's the problem with Bibles. They all look the same, don't they? This one here, it's a nice black-looking Bible. That's uh, a revision of the Bible by Joseph Smith. That contains a whole load of stuff that won't be in your Bible. It talks about a prophet coming later by the name of Joseph. Amazing. But that, that looks like a bona fide Bible. This one is a nice-looking purple Bible. If Sham was here, she'd appreciate this. She loves purple. This is a Seventh-day Adventist Bible. And if I was to look into that, as I have, I'd find all those verses that I found mistranslated in my version are the same in this one. So it's obviously not a case of just looking on the surface and saying, that looks good. So where do we go in terms of choosing a, a Bible translation? Well, a lot of people would say that old is good. And so I meet people from time to time. In fact, there was one in this church for, for quite a while. I said, you need to go back to the original. If it was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for us. The King James Version. That's the one you need. The 1611 Version. And if somebody said to me, well, which would you choose? The good news, the uh, King James Version or a modern Bible? I'd say, what do you prefer? An F.J. Holden? Or the 2020 Ford Mondeo. Well, looking at the FJ Holden, you'd have to say there was a lot of of nice things about it. They don't put chrome like that on cars anymore, do they? It's a beautiful looking car, and I can imagine why people love to drive it, and they love to collect them. Look at the dash. Uh, Amazing. Nice lines, good engine. You can get it with leather seats. But would I choose it? You see, 50 or 60 years later, I look at that dash, and I think, that's a mighty hard-looking piece of polished metal. And I wonder if I had an accident and my fleshly head hit that nice piece of metal, which would give first? So there have been improvements, haven't they? If I look closely, I'd see there were no seatbelts in there, there were no indicators. Things have been improved. Those little knobs everywhere, you kind of think, again, in an accident, that's not the kind of thing you want to see sticking out there, is it, to, to take out an eye or, or something else. So even though the FJ was the best car that Australia could produce at the time, I would say it wouldn't be one I'd want to be driving around. I wouldn't want my family in there. They, they knew nothing about what to do in a, in a collision, did they? So these days, if you had a car like that, it would have crumple zones. So you have an accident, it takes all the energy out of that accident, and the people are preserved in that little capsule. In that car, if you got hit, that engine block would end up in your lap. But now, modern cars, it deflects underneath the car. So again, I'd say, you could give me the choice of the FJ or a modern car, I'd take a modern car every time, because although it was the best at its time, it's not the best that's now available. And that's what I'd say about the, uh, the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, we probably need to, to see how the Bible came to us. There's a little chart here. English Bible was the first Bible, printed Bible, that was taken actually from the Greek text, was the one by Tyndale, William Tyndale. And that one kind of progressed. There were revisions of it up to the King James Bible. It said that the King James Bible was probably 90% William Tyndale. And William Tyndale had a Greek text 
Uh, the, so, the, so the Greek language, the, the Matthew to Revelation behind the King James Version and behind Tyndale was won by a guy named Erasmus who lived in the Netherlands. He was a great guy, he was a great scholar and you may not know this but in terms of the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation in the original Greek, uh, the, the manuscripts don't appear in the same place or, and in one piece. So if you were to look for the original New Testament, you won't find it scattered all over the world. And the reason is because the early Christians loved God's word and they copied it and they copied it for each other and we ended up with many, many copies. Now Erasmus, um, he lived in the Netherlands and it wasn't a place where you could get every kind of manuscript you want. So he had six copies. He had six Greek manuscripts. He only had one of the book of Revelation. And the book he did have, the copy he did have of Revelation, was missing the last six verses. So uh, what Erasmus did was, he thought, what am I going to do? I'm missing six verses. So he found a Latin version, which is many, many hundreds of years later than the Greek, translated that back into Greek, and he thought that would do. Uh, and so you'll find in the King James Version and the text behind it, uh, Greek words that don't appear in any Greek manuscript anywhere, because they came out of uh, Erasmus. But this is the way it works. So if you're in the first century, I'm living in Ephesus and I get a letter from the Apostle Paul and I say, this is fantastic. And a couple of people in the church, Matt Devonish said, I'd like a copy of that. Do you mind if I, I take a copy of that? And he copies that down and then somebody else wants, Dennis wants one. And then while Matt is travelling to Corinth, he meets one of them. They've got some letters from Paul as well. He said, I've got a letter from, to us, to Ephesus. Would you like a copy of that? They go, fantastic. And the one in Corinth, do you mind if I take a copy of that? Sure. So copies amassed and amassed and people swapped them amongst each other or they had them made and so they ended up with uh, originally just a few and then there was you know a group of Paul's letters together in a collection and they might have been added the Gospels but there are many 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 different copies. Now the problem with making copies is if I gave all of you if I said I'd like you to copy the first three chapters of John down and I gave you the text and you all wrote on an A4 piece of paper the first three chapters of John I can guarantee that there would be some mistakes in there. Some of you can't spell. And so there would be the odd spelling mistake. Sometimes what happens is if you copy from, I don't know if you've ever done this, you copy from a sheet and if two, two lines end with the same word, sometimes you'll skip a line. It's just a thing that commonly happens. Or sometimes you'll add in a line. And so that's what happens. And that's not a problem. If we got 100 people here and I collated those 100 back together, I could pretty well work out, couldn't I, where the errors were. Because 98 people would have spelt uh, the word God correctly and um, Alex would have spelled it G-A-D. So <laughs> that's not a problem. So we can work that out. But then if I, I took those 100 copies and gave them to another 100 people, we'd have another group of errors, wouldn't we? And then, again, it's, it's reasonably simple to kind of work out which is which. And in simple terms, that's what happens and that's what happened with Erasmus. So no Greek manuscript is exactly the same and what they do is they compare them together and go, well, what's the original? The other thing that happens with the scriptures which would be different to what would happen in normal copying is nobody wanted to leave anything out. So what happened is as the copying goes on, people would read something, let's say they read in Matthew. He's, Matthew records Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, now, one of the other Gospels in Mark, Mark just records the first bit of that, you are the Christ. And Luke just records the last bit, you are the Son of God. 
Now, what tends to happen with people copying stuff is they're, they're, they're doing Mark or Luke and they go, well, he's missed out a bit. He's missed out a bit. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So they tended to harmonise one gospel with another. And so it tended to get larger. And so you find over time, the Greek text tended to get larger and larger and larger. So obviously, it's clear to get to the earliest ones is the best. If I could get to the 100 copies that you guys have done, or at least to the next 100, I'd be closer to the original. And that's what happens with um, people who are called textual critics, who basically collate manuscripts together. So Erasmus had a problem because he only had six manuscripts. And he, the earliest he had went back to, I think it was uh, the 10th century, so 900. So 800 years after Christ. That wasn't his problem. Like the FJ, this was the best Greek text put together at the time. But today we don't have six manuscripts, we have 5,500 manuscripts. And we not only have those 5,500 manuscripts, but we have translations of the original text into other languages as it occurred. We have the old songbooks that, rec that recorded some of those um, parts from the Bible. And we have uh, a part of the letter of John that goes back to within about 80 years of John writing it. That's the earliest manuscript we have. So, so in a modern translation, what we're able to do is go far back, far further back. Erasmus had them 800 years after they were written. We can go back to within 50 or 80 years of when they were written. And then we can see what things may have been added over time. And I don't mean added in a way that's actually... Um, done for a bad purpose, but often done for a good purpose, because they didn't want to lose anything of what God had said. And so sometimes there'd be a manuscript and someone would write a comment in the, in the side margin, and 50 years later someone would come along and go, well that's obviously slipped out of the text, I better put that back in. So we had a much more inflated text, the King James Version has a much more inflated text than you'll see here in, the, um, in a modern translation. Here's a couple of examples, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 says in the King James Version, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This doesn't occur in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. In fact, even at the time of Erasmus, when he put together his text for the King James Bible, his first edition didn't include that verse. And then somebody said, I think it should have that verse in it. Where did they get the verse from? They got it from a Latin version, which was much, much later. So it had obviously been added over time. They said, well, it's not a real Bible if you haven't got that verse in there. And Erasmus said, if you can find me a Greek manuscript, and that's all I'm interested in, you find me a Greek manuscript with that verse in and I'll put it in. And so, I don't know how long after it was, but somebody turned up with a Greek manuscript with that verse in and he put it in. And it now appears that that Greek manuscript was written after Erasmus had put in the first Greek text. So it wasn't... <laughs> It was written specifically to put that verse in. So that's not a verse that's uh, part of God's word. Secondly, you might have seen these guys uh, around on TV. These are snake handlers. Churches in the backwoods of the US, this is part of their worship. They handle snakes. Why do they do that? Because the last bit of Mark chapter 16, which says that these signs shall follow them. Uh, they shall cast out devils. They'll speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That too is not part of the, the original verses that God has provided for us. That's in the King James, but it does not exist in the earliest manuscripts. That's not something we can rely on. Uh, what else shouldn't be there? This is 
something that we may have said many times, I've heard it many times at communion. This is my body which is broken for you. That section in italics, which is broken for you, does not occur in the original Greek manuscripts. It occurs in the King James, but if you go back to those earliest manuscripts, it's not there. And when you think about it, it seems to, in any case, be a contradiction, because John 19 says that not a bone of his should be broken, that Christ was like the Passover lamb and nothing was broken. So these are things that may seem, some of them are inconsequential, some of them are consequential, but certainly if we want to get back to what God has revealed in Greek or in Hebrew, then we want to go back to those original things. The other uh, thing which I hadn't noticed before, but this is in Romans 8 and verse 28, sometimes things drop out. So the King James Bible will tell us that all things work together for good to them that love God. Some of you would have memorized this as, as kids or whatever. But the original, closest to the original, it actually says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes things drop in, sometimes things drop out. The other issue with an older version of the Bible is that discoveries about language had not been made. Again, not their fault. In 1611, when the King James Bible came out, I think there were something like 850 words which the translators said these are only Bible words. They don't exist anywhere outside that. And so they had to take a guess by the context or whatever, working out what the word means. Well, hundreds of years later, papyri and other things have been dug up, commercial documents, and they actually know what these words mean. I think we're now to about 50 words that don't occur outside the Bible. And so the King James Bible says the law was our schoolmaster bringing us to Christ. Um, they since learned that actually that word pedagogus is actually a guardian. It was a slave that actually took somebody to school. So they protected, they had the, the son of the master, they protected them on the way to the school till they could be safely put in the hands of the school. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That the law was like that, that it guarded Israel, protected them until they could be handed over to Christ. The next thing is uh, language. Um, someone can explain to me what these things mean. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. I think Rod knows all about leasing. Watch out. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now that may have, again, perfect sense, great for people in 1611 because they understood exactly what it meant. But if you're trying to communicate God's word, you don't want things that obscure that meaning. The other problem is, um, and the next slide, is things where we think we know what it means. So this verse in Peter says, uh, wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any not, obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. Now reading that in the modern context, it means that our wives are so good in the way that they converse in the logical way that they're going to convince us. But as the uh, New Revised Standard Version will tell us, it's actually the word conversation then meant the way they live their life, their conduct. So again, sometimes that's more of a danger. We think we know what it means. I was surprised to find that in the King James, the words by and by, when you think about when someone says, I'll oh, buy and buy, in King James English, it meant at once or immediately, the very opposite of what we would imagine that to be. So words change meaning, and so um, ancient translations or older translations may be very useful. If you've been brought up with it and this is something you use in your devotions, um, that's fine. Like the FJ, you want to drive your FJ around and you love it and you love to polish it, that's fine. But in terms of, of general in our devotional life, I wouldn't recommend it. 
Next one. Okay. I'll go back from that one, actually. So in terms of the King James Bible, we also got the, the new King James Version. That came out in 1984. And so you're saying, okay, well, that's a modern translation. I can trust that one. But the actual 1984 New King James was written for people who love the King James. So it has the same textual base as the King James has, and often it has the same archaisms in it. So again, um, it's the same thing. If you have to choose a translation, my advice is to choose a modern translation. What do we do? Modern translations, look, that's only a, that's only a, a few of them. Now, m most people would say, well, what, what do you have in a modern translation? Well, you, you've got either you've got your word-for-word -word translation or you've got your paraphrase. And the people who've got paraphrases hate the word-for-word -word because they're so wooden. And the people who've got the word-for-word -word going, why would you want to paraphrase? It's like a comic book. But it's not exactly like that. For a, for a start, there is no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation. You really can't do it. Because the word order, if you've, any of us have studied a language, you know that the word order in other languages is different. So if I was to say to someone, I did a little bit of um, Dutch at adult ed, and when they want to say, how are you, they say, how goes it with you? Well, if you translate that for an English person, it doesn't mean anything, does it? How are you? That's the way we translate it. So word for word doesn't really work. Um, the other reason why word for word doesn't work is because words have a different range in them. A word in French or Spanish may have a whole different range of meaning than the word of English. So sometimes you need a different word in English or an auxiliary word, an extra word, uh, to make that clear. The phrasing too, the order of words is different, or the way they talk about things. So Matri would know if, I were, if I'm a Dutch person and I want to say, I'm hungry, they don't say, I'm hungry, they say, ik heb hunger. I have hunger. So again, to translate I have hunger in an English book wouldn't make any sense. Uh, they phrase it differently and English does too. In Dutch too, they've got some strange words. I remember going to a, a service station and looking for a pair of gloves. They're called handschoen, hand shoes. Makes perfect sense when you think about it. Shoes for the feet, hand shoes. So again, you wouldn't translate it as hand shoes, you'd translate it as gloves. A couple of idioms in Dutch, time for that. The first one means that a person's crazy. It's a long word, isn't it, to say, a long phrase for a person's crazy. And klap van de Molenhaven. what it means is he's been hit by a windmill. <laughs> so this is, this, is Dutch, this is Dutch idiom, and, and it makes sense to them. The other one is about people that are always dragging up the past. Talk to people like that, always talking about the past. Over Cohen, out the Schlothalen. They're always dragging old cows out of the ditch. So again, it reflects the culture. Language often reflects the culture. So there is no, thing, no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation. And in fact, Bibles exist on a spectrum. So here we would have uh, a Bible like the New American Standard Version or the, um, or the English Standard Version. Up here we would have the message as the other end of the spectrum. And they're about ways in which they their philosophy about translation. So up this end, these are the guys who say, we want the Bible, we want that Greek text to be transmitted to English in as clear as possible way. We don't want to diminish the fact that this is written in the first century to uh, people living in, in the Middle East or in Europe. And so we want to do as little as we can. And we want to preserve the language as much as we can. And we, we, have, a, we have a word for that, which if, hopefully if there's some Maybe I'll have to stick it up. 
But this is called, these versions are called formal equivalence versions. So they want it to be equivalent in our language to the way it was, uh, and so they will often use the same words, sometimes the same, similar kind of word order, and preserve it as much as possible. Up the other end of these guys, used to be called dynamic equivalence, now it's called functional equivalence. So basically what these guys are saying is we want the language to work in such a way and have the same impact as it did for people in the first century. So when I want to read it, I don't want to know that I'm living in, particularly that I'm living in Israel or I'm living uh, in the Middle East. I just want it to hit me. I want it to hit me hard the way it would have hit them. And so I want to get rid of anything that distracts from that. So there's nothing wrong with any of those, with any of those principles. My dad was a carpenter and he had a quite, a, quite a few tools. He wasn't a man to spend a lot of money. He'd like to hold on to a dollar if he could. But he had a, quite a few numbers of hammers. And so I'd say to him, Dad, well, this one I pretty much knew what that was for. This was Dad's everyday hammer. This is one he'd go to the building site and he'd be hammering floors or nailing joists or whatever it was. That's the one he'd use. Claw hammer so you can get the nails out with the other side. Pretty standard. I'd say about this next one, what's this one for, Dad? This is a tacking hammer. This is a hammer he might use on a bit of beading or framing or something like that. Very light, very light hammer. Then he had another one. This one's a mallet, a joiner's mallet, I think it's called. But this is one if you want to knock something into place but you don't want to damage the wood, you use this. It was quite light but quite solid. And then he had another one, which was, I guess that's a club hammer, and he'd use that with a, um, one of those cold, cold chisels. He'd smack that really hard. And he probably had a sledgehammer, he might have had some other stuff. Well, I couldn't say to Dad, if I said, Dad, which is, what's your best hammer? What's your best hammer you got? And so, well, I, I can't compare them. They're all used for different things. And so one isn't useful for another purpose. They're all made for a purpose. It's a bit the same with translations. People like to say, this is the best translation. This is it. And you'll see on the internet, what's the most accurate translation? Which is the one that's going to get me closer? Well, it might depend on who you are. So if, if it was a, let's say it was a person that had just come from overseas, English was their second language, I'm not going to say to them, get the New American Standard Version. That's the one, that's the one best for you. Because they might find a lot of words in there that were difficult for them, a bit of idiom that's hard for them to decipher. I'd grab something like the Good News Bible. I'd say, take that one. Because that's a revelation of God in a very easy and simple way. When my kids were young, we used to do the devotions with the Good News Bible. Very simple, accurate, based on a good Greek text. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's horses for courses. We use them according to their purpose. So we're going to have a little bit of a comparison. I hope you can see these. Let's see how big they come up. This is Psalm 1-1. This is according to a number of different versions. So at the top, we start with these formally equivalent versions. And at the bottom, the, the other end, the, the message. So in the ESV, blessed in the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Immediately to your ears, you go, walks not. I mean, who says walks not? Uh, this is because they're based on, the, the English Standard Version is actually a revision of an earlier Bible, Revised Standard Version, and they've just kept that with them. But notice that they use these words, uh, it's a translation from the Hebrew, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now in Hebrew, in that language, each of those is a deterioration from the first. There's a progression, a downward progression. The first one, they 
walk in the counsel of the wicked. So walk in the same way the wicked are going. The wicked are going that way. They're walking along with them. In the second one, they stand in the way of sinners. So this is someone who's in the company of people who are sinners, actually stopped and is part of that. The third one is sits in the seats of... So then there's, there's an even more sedentary position, isn't it? And they're seated in a place where people are scoffing about God. So there's a progression in Hebrew goes place, takes place. Both the ESV and the New American Standard Version um, keep that going. So uh, a little better the NASB. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. The New uh, International Version does something similar. See, the problem is with the ESV and the NASB, if you actually looked at that, nor stand in the path of sinners, it's not obviously clear, is it? Like if someone stands in your path, that actually obstructs you. That's not what the verse means. They've tried to keep the literal um, translation, but it's a bit obscure. So the NIV does it a bit better and says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. And the NIV sits right in the middle. The, NIV, the reason it's probably the most popular Bible around is it sits in the middle. It tries to be, pay attention to formal equivalence, but at the same time be perfectly functional. The other ones... Uh, you notice on the next ones, they start to lose that idea of walking, standing, sitting. Happy in the man who doesn't follow in the advice of the wicked. Those uh, stand around with sinners, refuse evil advice. And then the, the message, how well God must like you. You don't walk in the ruts of those blinders bats. You don't stand for the good for nothings. You don't take your seat among the know-it-alls. So that's, a, that's a, quite an extension. Here's another one. This is from um, Ephesians chapter 2. When it talks about uh, us once walking, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And if you look through there, you'll see again, the word walked is used because that's a literal walk. Uh, it's, it's talking about living, but we understand that. And I guess the people at, the, at that end, at the formal equivalents are saying, people know that. If I say walk in those ways, they know we're talking about living. Uh, as you get further down the Good News Bible and the New Living Translation, want people to know this is about living. I don't want you to follow the, the world's evil way. But, but notice that by the time we come to the message, we're missing something. The others uh, mention the prince of the power of the air. The New Living Translation and the CEV wants to make it obvious. So they just say the devil. So you don't have to make up your mind. And this is the difference between a formal equivalence and a functional equivalent. Here they're saying, you make up your mind. We're just going to give you the text. You work out what it means. Here they're saying, you may know, let's, let's tell you exactly what it means so there's no ambiguity. When it gets to the message, do you think there's something missing there? It wasn't so long ago you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. Now, I, love, I like the phrasing. I think that's great. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and exhaled disobedience. But it's missing something. It's missing the idea that there's this prince of the power of the air, the spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. So you've got to be very careful when you get to this end that you are actually getting what God has provided through the Greek text and you haven't got an interpretation of that. Or worse, you're not missing something. The next one is... Okay. Now this one, the other thing uh, I think people need to watch out for Versions are, these versions up this end, are usually put together by committees. 
So what will happen is there will be an expert, let's say an expert in Hebrew and Greek, and they'll say a group will get together and there will be a sponsoring organisation, maybe a Bible society. They're saying, you have studied the book of Hebrews for 30 years and you've taught it in seminary. We'd like you to translate the book of Hebrews for us. And we're going to put together a group of five Greek scholars and you're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And then they'll translate, he'll, that guy will translate the book of Hebrews. It'll be submitted to a Greek group of Greek scholars and they'll go, yeah, well, this could be tweaked here, could be tweaked there. They'll make sure that on that committee there's a whole range of Christian denominations. So there could be a Baptist in there, there'll be an Anglican, there'll be somebody else. Uh, to avoid any kind of sectarian bias in the translation. And so we'll go to this group of four or five and they'll go, yeah, that's good, no, you need to correct this, yeah, we agree this should be corrected. Then it'll go to an English um, expert and they'll kind of sort the language out and make sure that it reads well and so that when it's read out in a congregation like this it's not misunderstood. Then it'll go back to the Greek guys and they say, well, but we've changed the English a bit, does that affect the meaning? And they'll say, yes, it does, you've got to go back and so on. Long process, takes many years. This Bible here, I'm glad someone brought one along, John Elmer, Living Bible, one of the most popular Bibles of the 1970s. This Bible sold 40 million copies at one stage. In one year in the US, 47% of Bible sales were this one. So you go, great Bible, and obviously did, did a lot of good. It's like Dad's Hammers, you know, it did a lot of good for a lot of people. This one was translated by one guy. He translated it not from the Greek text, but from an English version from 1901, and he did it on, a, on the train on the way to work every day. So, so there's far, far different, far different a version like this to versions had many years with many people going over it and looking for biases. So what you have in these kind of versions, so we've got the message and we've got the Living Bible and we've got um, the, the Passion Translation, we've got the Phillips Translation, we've got Barclay Translation. These are individual translations and they're great because they've got a great turn of phrase. You ever been part of a committee? You know that something often gets lost. You've got someone with a great idea and it's innovative, it's fantastic. By the time it gets around 10 people it's this bland Ask anyone who's on the teaching team about how that works with fantastic ideas that somehow end up in a different place. Well, that's what it's like. So the great thing about an individual translation is they're full of life. The message, that's why people buy it, because it's, wow, this is fantastic. It's such a great turn of phrase. But you've got to be careful because these people have not had the same kind of editorial control. There's not been the same kind of work that's gone into the text. And so they have funny turns of phrases. I know in the Phillips version, which is very good, one of the verses that's often quoted is that Phillips came up with it first, which is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, which is a great, great little verse. But some of these others, uh, in the first version, the original uh, Hebrew says, anoint your head. His version was, brush your hair. I'm not sure that's equivalent, but, but he was working with young people, and so he, this was something that was done on the fly. Later, he revised that one. Greet one another with a holy kiss became, give a hearty handshake all around. Living Bible says, your word is a flashlight to my feet. You know, these are just ways of, of being contemporary. So that's okay, but sometimes you've also got to look at whether there could be bias. Because if it's a one-person translation uh, and hasn't gone through any other filters. So with, um, this is the verse in 1 Corinthians 6 about those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty plain not the sexually immoral, not the idolaters, not adulterers, not men who practice homosexuality. All fine, they pretty much all continue that down. When we get to the message, it says, don't you realise this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. 
Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Well, I think you're missing something there. You're missing the specificity. Uh, I mean, to, the specificity. Okay, say it. <laughs> Let's just say it. it's not good. So, using and abusing sex doesn't really tell you what that is. And perhaps the reason is, I don't know this for sure, but a couple of years ago, the, the writer of the message was asked, would he perform a same-sex wedding ceremony for a gay couple in his church who were Christians of good faith? And he said, yes. So you've got to wonder whether sometimes personal opinion uh, can be engendered in a version that's just a one-person version. So that's, I'd say, be careful one-person versions. This one version, The Passion, again, quite popular. This guy says that he went to heaven and Jesus said, I want you to make this translation. And the guy himself didn't have the, the academic ability to do that. So he said that Jesus downloaded the Hebrew into his brain to do it. Well, now, you've got to take that and you've got to ask yourself whether that, that seems okay. And you, you'll find he, he believes that apostles, uh, such as the, um, the original apostles, are around today. So his version, when he says about the, first, the apostles being named in Matthew, uh, the Bible tells us that the 12 apostles were named. His, his version says, and the first 12 apostles were named. Well, that's only a small addition, but what he's saying is there were other apostles. The first ones were named Matthew and so on, but there were others. So be very careful about versions that are one-person versions. Um, so, like I say, and, and like my father's hammers, these versions are used for different reasons. For devotional, I think if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you should have Bibles, at least one Bible at that end, at the formal equivalence end. You want to know, as I certainly want to know, what did God say? What's the closest way I can get to what God originally said in his word? And there'll be some things in there that will be confusing. Because the things about this end is they want to get rid of confusion. So there might be three ways to interpret a phrase in Greek. And so they will try and translate it as ambiguous as it is in Greek. This end they'll try and give you an answer. So they'll say, it's the devil. Or for, in our Bible study the other week, uh, it was talking about Jesus uh, and uh, it talked about his comes through the blood and the spirit. And so you go, what does that mean? Oh, blood and water, sorry, blood and water. Through the blood and water, what does that actually mean? Well, that would be something that would be puzzling you and you might have to do some research to find out what it is. This one will tell you. This one will say the blood of his sacrifice and his baptism. But that's not actually what the Greek says, and other people have different interpretations. But a paraphrase, or, or sorry, a um, functional equivalent will try and give you the answer. So if, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you should definitely have one at the formal equivalence level, and you should definitely have one at this level. These, and you should, you know, if you can only afford one Bible, I don't know how many of us can, but the NIV is a great middle-of-the-road Bible, or the Holman Bible is a great middle-of-the-road Bible, because it tries to accommodate both. But none is perfect. None is perfect. But, uh, and sometimes reading a, um, one of these at this end can actually help clarify something that we read in the other. So, if we ask the question, how do I choose a translation, the, answer, the question you've got to ask first is, who's it for and for what purpose? So it's for you and you want to do study, then go to that end, formal equivalence. If it's um, something that's an everyday Bible, you just want to take it around, you want to have it in your bag, maybe NIV is a, is a great one to have. If you're evangelising to someone, you might want to take a small Bible and you might want to take 
you know, a New Living Translation or a Good News Bible. I should explain that the New Living Translation is not the same as the Living Bible. So it's put out by the same people. This is the original one, the one translated on a train by one person. This one, they said, it's a popular Bible, but we think we're doing a disservice to people. So we're actually going to get a group of Greek scholars together. We're going to use a good text, and we go through the formal translation process, but we're going to do it in as readable way as possible. So it's actually a very good translation, but on the kind of freer end. So, depending on who it's for. Second is, read the preface. When you buy a Bible, don't just grab it, but read the preface. What is it about? Who translated it? What are their qualifications for doing so? What's their translation philosophy? The third is, establish whether, what they're aiming for. Is it formal equivalence? Is it functional equivalence? And which one that you want? After that, it's a matter of looking for features. So you get your Bible. I think it's important to look for a Bible first. There's lots of study Bibles. I've got a stack of them down there in the corner. These are ones you don't carry around in your bag. These are ones you have at home. But much better to choose a good translation first and then get the study Bible version of that. And for people who don't know what a study Bible is, it's like got lots of notes and footnotes and stuff. Get a good translation first and then choose the study Bible afterwards. Um, so uh, look for cross-references. This one, this is a New American Standard Version. What I like about this one is, feature is, if it's quoted from the Old Testament, it'll be in capitals. So you notice up the top, the scripture says, and you've got capitals. That's helpful because sometimes in scripture, it doesn't actually say that it's quoting. It doesn't say for the scripture says, it just says for something or other. If it's in capitals, it'll tell you that it's an Old Testament um, quotation. And in the, the cross-references or the footnote, it'll tell you where it's from. The second is, if you look at verse 20, you'll see that some, and 21 and 22, you'll see that some verses are in italics. Anyone know what, why that is? Sorry? For clarity. So what they're actually saying by doing that is we've inserted these words. The Greek text is in the normal text. We've inserted these words to make it more clear. So at least you know when they've stuck something in. And to give the passion guys due, um, they do the same. So it's in italics um, if it's not included in the original. And interestingly, the, the passion translation is 50% longer than your normal New Testament. So it gives you some indication. But uh, at, least, at least it's in italics so you can see it. So if you look for those kinds of things, they can be very helpful. And the, uh, the last thing is to say is to use the Bible daily. Whatever Bible you've got, choose a translation. It's no use having the best translation money can buy if it's sitting on your shelf. And they're accessible to us. You can have it on your phone. You can have it anywhere you go. But it's, the Bible is God's revelation to us. He has seen fit to preserve this word for thousands of years, when you think about the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years to us. And it's just as livable and just as breathable. Hebrews says that the word of God is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide bone and marrow and thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's scripture. And if we, if we pay attention to scripture, it's much more important. I would be much happier with someone taking the message and reading it every day and putting into practice what's in there than someone having a, a very fine word-for-word -word kind of translation, but it has no impact at all. So let me pray and thank God for his goodness to us and providing us with all that. Father, you've provided us with so much stuff. We have more and abundance of your word. We thank you that you give us editions uh, of your word in our language. We don't have to decipher an ancient language ourselves. We thank you that you give it to us in varieties, that we can have daily Bibles, chronological Bibles, all sorts of things. 
But we thank you most of all that you have um, inspired these writers to put your words uh, into print. We thank you that we can hear from you directly, that you would speak to us through your spirit and that your spirit would unlock the words on the pages so that they're not just uh, black and white letters but they're actually uh, a powerful motivator. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is, uh, did not die out, that he's here, that he's here among us now and that when we read your word and speak about it, uh, he can open it up to us. So I would pray, Father, for all of us that in the next days and weeks as we read your word, you would reveal it to us. You would tell us more of your character. You would tell us more of your plans. That you would give us your, your will for us and you would give us comfort. And I pray too that we'd be confronted by the words on the pages. We understand that we can be over-familiar with phraseology and so we ask you to, to open this up for us afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.